you have to find that one glimmer, just that one glimmer of joy, one glimmer of hope. And that's going to get you through a few more steps to go just a little bit further. Hi, and welcome to Complex Conversations brought to you by the Blue Bee Collective. I'm your host, Chastity Short, and I'm so glad you're here. Complex Conversations in the Blue Bee Collective exist to provide education, advocacy, and empowerment to families living lives with medically complex kids. We bring together providers and families to give you information and empowerment to live your best possible life. Today, we're joined by Chris Stewart, a very busy mother of five. We're going to talk about parenting multiple children with multiple different disabilities. And Chris has a beautiful way of talking about finding that glimmer of joy amidst the chaos. So buckle up and enjoy the show. And remember, if you're here, you belong. All right, we are joined today by Chris, and Chris is a longtime, started out as a patient's mom of mine, slash longtime friend now, so I'm really excited to have her on. Thank you so much, Chris, for coming on the Complex Conversations podcast. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited about this. (laughs) Me too. I've been looking forward to talking to you. Um, So you have so much wisdom to share with all of us, and I want to hear all about it, but can we talk, why don't you give us like a, just an overview of your life and kind of what's going on? Um, well, I have five children. Um, they all have some kind of varying disease, um, special needs. Um, I have autistic nonverbal twins that are 10 years old. Um, I also have some adult children. They go from 21, 18, 15 to 10. Um, I'm a homeschool mom. Um, I've been married for 25 years. And we're busy, <laughs> very, very busy. You are busy. I follow you on social media and I always see like all the stuff you're doing. And I don't know, you're always an inspiration to me, um, especially uh, not not just having one kiddo with a medical complexity, but having a bunch. So we met a long time ago with one of your older adult kiddos who yes. I just fell in love with. And I've loved watching her kind of through social media grow up. It's been Yeah, she was, I want to say she was about eight or nine, I think, when we met. Um, So, and now she's 21. She's graduated. She's taking art classes. Um, She has some special needs, too. Um, One of her things is that she may never never be able to drive um, due to some abuse that she sustained. Um, And we're just trying to help her um, navigate that. Um, because that's been a challenge. Um, she wants to be grown and she wants to do things with her friends. Um, but because I have other special needs children in the house and still some high schoolers in the house, uh, I'm one person trying to, you know, take five people everywhere they need to go. So we've had to, you know, navigate that a little bit. Um, but she's doing wonderful and I'm really proud of her. She's overcome a lot of obstacles. Um, and having, having special needs with her is where I learned to advocate. Um, because when, when she first came into my care, I adopted her. I adopted the, my first three children. Um, I didn't know how to advocate. I didn't know how to talk to doctors. I, I can remember, I didn't even know how to talk to you, uh, when I first started, and it was intimidating, um, mm-hmm. but because it's of all definitely of definitely a learned skill, you know, all the experiences I've had with every single one of my children have led me to today. And today 
I think of myself as a really good advocate. Um, I try to create boundaries um, for myself and for my kids. Um, being able to question, hey, why is this? What about this? Well, how come? And it's okay. I've learned it's okay to question. You know, we don't have to just sit back and take something verbatim. We don't have right. to sit back and say, um, okay, well, this is what this doctor said um, and take it as a gospel. And mm -hmm. I've learned to be able to say, hey, you know, I don't, I don't know if I agree with you on that. I'm going to research that and I'll get back to you. And, and I feel like because I have done that, I've earned a lot of respect in the medical community to advocate for my children. Because when I go into the doctor's office and I say, hey, I researched this and I have a question about this, they take me seriously um, right. because they know that I'm going to keep on it until I get a clear answer or a clear decision or direction on how to help yeah. something. But that's I feel like taken years, years. It's taken a long time. And oh. you are like a powerhouse advocate. Now we can, there's so much we can learn from you. I feel like advocacy is more of a relationship, like building yes. a relationship between you and the provider, mutually respectable. That's the right word to use relationship where you respect them, they respect you. And then you can listen to each other rather than being like authority and receiver you know, of like, whatever he says, like you said, like, it's not gospel, he or she, um, this is their experience, but you are the expert in your child. So bringing it on a level playing field, it goes so far, you know, in being able to just, first of all, not be miserable all the time, because you're constantly fighting with people. It's more of a conversation, you know, than a fight. Absolutely. Well, and like with my daughter, um, when she was seven, um, I had been advocating for her for years. You know, I would take her to the doctor and I would tell him and, and, and to go back just a little bit. My daughter was almost three when I got her and I had never been a mother before. So I didn't really I didn't know what to look for. I didn't know. I was just excited to have this beautiful, special child. And I had no idea that she had special needs um, when she came into my home and um learning her and uh, teaching her, I was feeling, wait a minute, I'm seeing all these other children and she's not doing X, Y, Z. So when I would go to the doctor, they would say, oh, Chris, you know, quit comparing her to other children. That was a big disservice to me because had they listened and had they said, you know what, well, let's just check and let's see, instead of telling me that, uh, we wasted a lot of ground because, you know, being a therapist, that once a child has a mountain to climb, it's a really hard climb and it takes a long time. These are not things that happen overnight. And right. so we went from age three to age about five, six, seven before we ever had answers on what some of her problems were. And That's so when, crazy. It's so when, crazy. When she came to you. When she first started seeing you, I think she was around seven, if I remember correctly. She only came in at three years, eight months, median age. And you she remember helped. that? Yeah, it was a lot of catch up. And they told me, once I finally got somebody to listen to me, that she would always be behind her peers. Or she would stay in one spot and her peers would keep getting 
further and further and further. And when you hear something like that, how devastating. I can remember sitting in the Target parking lot crying my eyes out because I thought, oh my goodness, my poor child, you know, how are we going to overcome this? Um, mm -hmm. And that was when I decided, you know what, we're going to fight and we're not going to listen to what this doctor says about she's going to stay in one place. Mm -hmm. And um, that was our, that was when our journey started of no, you know, you may always be a little bit behind your peers, but you're not going to be stuck. I'm not going right. to allow that to happen. And so we did therapy. We did, um, we put her in dance, you know, we, we put her in all kinds of activities so that she could be social and that she could um, get all the movement that she needed. Um, and so now she's 21 years old. Would I say that she's 21? Um, there are times, yeah, she's definitely right up with her peers. And then there are other times or a few things that maybe she she's still learning and growing, but I don't, she's definitely not stuck, you know, mm -hmm. at a seven year old age. And well, I'm, uh, I think that's a common, that. I mean, yeah, it, it's, it's a very rare thing in a therapist's life to be able to see see this growth from like when they were little, when you saw them to now they're 21 and it's very rewarding and it's it's just amazing. But I think you were saying when, like you said, you were in the target parking lot. I feel like every medical parent has that one instance that they can pinpoint that it's like, this is when I decided to advocate, or this is when I decided to fight, you know? And it's kind of, I don't know, part of it's like, I'm kind of glad sometimes that people or doctors say things like that, like that, because if not, like how long would it have taken to wake that fight up? Right. You know, um, right. it's a double-edged sword, hurtful, but also like, well, we needed that. We all needed that to be able to survive and thrive and, and all of that. Correct. And then the other thing is, so you get bad news like that. It is so easy to just feel like a failure. It's so easy to have guilt. Um, there, you know, there's just so many things. But if you can set that aside and decide, okay, what this, we've got this mountain in front of us. What can I do that's going to benefit her, benefit him? And we can walk it happy with joy because me crying or being just devastated doesn't help anything, you know? And so mm -hmm. one of the things that I've tried to do, and I'm getting a little emotional about it, is um, we have to believe in our children. You know, we have to, they need us. We are their everything. We're their constant. We're their person. Um, and even like with my twins, you know, I'm their person. They're nonverbal. And so um, we have to basically say today is a good day to have a good day, you know, mm -hmm. and no matter how hard it is and how tiring it is and how frustrating and sad, we have to flip it because if I, I see so many parents that are just, you know, I go to therapy weekly, twice a week with my boys and I see some really distraught, sad parents and I want so bad to run over to them and say, I know this is hard and I know you've got such a struggle but find the joy, find that little sliver of hope because it's going to push you. It's going to get you to that next level. Um, and then you're going to be able to look back and you're going to see all the things you did 
and now they have a reward. You know, they've, they've conquered something, they've mastered something, and you're going to feel so good about it because you did it with happiness in your heart. And when you have a child that has such a bad disability, um, it's really easy to get lost in the grief. Um, mm -hmm. You know, having nonverbal twins, there was a season of my life that I just could not believe that this was my situation. You know, I could not believe that, you know, I waited 15 years to have them. And then all of a sudden I have, you know, severe autistic nonverbal twins, you know, and it was when I put them in the school system and, and that's a whole nother story in itself, but that's where I learned, okay, if we're going to get through this and we're going to climb this mountain, I have got to find the joy in it. I've got to find how to get through this and not just be sad all the time. Yeah. Um, and that's, I feel like that's really a gift that you have that you're good at communicating is the joy, finding the joy in what other people might look in from the outside and say, well, nothing really looks joyful about that situation. Yeah. You're able to find the joy and live it. And it really comes through. And it, I mean, it benefits everybody. You know, right. I think it helps people even that don't have kids with medical complexities to look at their life and be like, I'm an unjoyful hag and look at her. She's super joyful. I need to turn myself around. Well, and you know, a lot of, so at the therapy place that I go to, I have an amazing relationship with our therapist and, um, because of that relationship that I have with them, they have said, Hey, I have a patient or client that they could really use some support. Would you mind if I give them your phone number? And I'm like, yeah, send them my way. Um, and so I've, I've spoken to many of them and that is the one area that they're all really struggling in is they're just grieving. You know, mm -hmm. they're so sad. They're grieving. They're tired, you know, all those things. And so, um, I guess maybe that's one of my gifts, you know, that God it is, me, is and, that, and you, Oh, go ahead. Just, you know, hey, you know, I know this is rough. I know this is so tiring, but there, there has to be some, you have to find that one glimmer, just that one glimmer of joy, one glimmer of hope. And that's going to get you through a few more steps to go just a little bit further. Mm -hmm. um, at least it does for me. And I hope that by me being positive and me finding the joy, I mean, and I'm honest, I'm like, you know, this is not fun. I don't enjoy that. I don't enjoy my boys not being able to talk to me. I don't enjoy them having meltdowns or um, being frustrated because they can't tell me something. Um, but I'm instead of, you know, losing my patience, um, uh, feeling all that negative energy, it's just easier for me to say, you know what? They're frustrated, but man, you know, they're alive and they're trying so hard and we're going to get through this and, you know, they're going to be able to communicate. I'm going to teach them how to communicate this with me and then we're going to move on to the next thing. And that's mm -hmm. just how I've had to do it. Um, it's a, it's I, a great way to do it. You know, I feel like in our current society, nobody knows how to grieve. Um, right. It's not something like we want to avoid suffering. We don't want to talk about death. We don't want to talk about grief. When someone dies, we just need you to hurry up and get better because this right. is super uncomfortable and we can't sit in this like right. sacred silence of grief, whether that's a child dying or that's um, a new diagnosis or like these moms at therapy that are just destroyed because they're grieving. 
I think it's because we don't know how to grieve. We don't know the process. And, you know, when you're in that situation, you're so overwhelmed and you're like, I know I need to go to therapy for myself, like mental health therapy, counseling, but you can't make one more appointment. And so you're just kind of like stuck in this place that, you know, there's people in your life and they love you, but at the same time, they don't know what to do with you either. So you're just kind of stuck. And so I don't know. I feel like we need, we need to talk about grief and we need to talk about how you do it to get to the other side, to find the joy. Well, and for me, you know, not to bring up the Bible, but for me, you know, reading the book of Job and just everything that he went through, you know, he got mad and he got sad and, um, you know, just angry. And those are stages, you know, you can't shove those stages down. You've got to work through each of those stages. Now I've not had the kind of grief that, you know, you've had, um, but we've all, we all have some kind of grief. Um, Mm -hmm. and some of us hand, you know, some of us handle it better than others. And, and a lot of it is from drawn from our own personal experiences, you know, like for me, um, you know, when I was a child, my brother was a medical complex child, medically fragile. And I was five years old. You know, I can remember being in a waiting room and not being able to go up to a NICU or pick you um, and, and, and basically having to just be by myself or be with other people that I didn't know um, because my parents needed to be with my brother. And so we take those life experiences of what's happened to us. And like, for instance, I'll give you an example. So when my boys were in the NICU, I spent 16 days in the NICU. And I had social workers come in and talk to me and they're like, how are you doing? I'm like, I'm doing good. And they're like, well, your boys are in the NICU. And I said, I know they're in the NICU. And they said, but you know, are you sure you're okay? It's like, yeah, my brother was born without an esophagus. He spent three years in the hospital. Perspective. My boys need to learn to eat and grow. It could be worse. And I have found that through my entire life, that's kind of what I've done. I I look at my situation. I look at what it could be. And it's always, it could be worse. And so that's kind of how I keep my joy, I guess, in a way. Um, is because I always just have perspective on, well, it could be worse. Like my boys, for instance. Okay, so they're autistic and they're nonverbal. But they could be in a wheelchair. You know, they could have a ventilator. They could, to me, those are things that would be worse. Um, Mm -hmm. And so um, I'm just happy they're here. You know, I waited 15 years. They were surprised. Um, I wasn't supposed to get pregnant. Um, I was able to carry them as far as I could, you know, 34 weeks. I was scared to death when I was pregnant. I was afraid to breathe. I was afraid to to envision what it would be like for them to be born because I just knew I was not going to get them. They were, I was going to lose them. And then when they finally got here and they were good and they were healthy, then I finally was able to let a sigh of relief out that, okay, you know, and everything was good until they were about two years old. And that's kind of when we started to see some things. Um, and they weren't necessarily pointing to autism at first. It was more of a hearing situation. Um, and then it kind of dragged on. And then we started noticing, okay, this is not getting better. 
Um, and when I tell you that I went through a season of grief with that situation, it was, I, I could still find the joy, but I definitely had grief. Mm-hmm. What um, was that like for you when they were, you saw they were falling behind and then you got the diagnosis that, uh, that they had autism? What was I that was like? I was petrified because you have to remember. So I already had one daughter that had some serious delays. Um, and then I also have, so my, I have three adopted children. My oldest daughter has some special needs. And then I also had at the time, um, when the twins were born, my four-year-old son who had just turned five, two weeks shy of me finding out that they were, I was pregnant, um, had autism and he was in speech and he was in physical therapy and he was in OT. And so when my twins started showing signs of these things, I kind of panicked a little bit because I thought, not again, you know, mm-hmm. what? I lived my life in therapy. I had already lived my life in therapy. I, it's not that I didn't want to do it again, but I was like, not another mountain. I can't handle another mountain. Um, and so anyway, when they turned two is when things started to kind of fall apart, I guess would be, they were on track and then all of a sudden they were not. Mm. And so um, I had actually gone to the pediatrician and had spoken to him about, hey, these are some things that I'm noticing that they're not doing and I don't think they can hear me. And so he said, oh, let's just give it some time. Um, let's wait a couple of months. I got mm. home. And he's, they're so, two at this point? They were two. Yeah, they were two. Oh my gosh. The wait and, and see just kills we had, me. We had no verbal then. Um, they would not turn around when I called their names. So I spoke to him about that. And he still wanted to give it some time. Went home, spoke to one of my friends. She's an attorney. And she does a lot of uh, CPS type adoptions and things. And she said, Chris, time is not on your side. You need to be, you need to advocate for this. And so I went home and called ECI that very day after leaving his office. And they couldn't see me for three months. So in that three months, I got them into a hearing appointment um, and found out. And then they couldn't do a booth. So we had to sedate them. And that's where I found out they had sensing neural hearing loss. And I'm just so glad I didn't wait because had I waited, uh, we could not have gotten emergency services to start therapies. They had, um, I think they had a PT, they had a speech, and they had a sign language therapist um, immediately. And then um, they turned three just a few months, uh, about six months later, they turned three. And that was kind of where I was at a crossroads because do I put them in the school system and they automatically can get services from the get-go or do I do what I did with my son, Ben, and that's do private therapy. But then when I hit the school system, I have to basically start all over again because they're going to want to do their own testing. Yeah, and I might or mm-hmm. might not get services. So we decided, you know what, let's just go ahead and put them through the school system. And that was grief in itself because they were three years old. They were babies yeah. to me. Little babies. And the, fr- the first week of school, 
their teacher fell and broke her knee and we had a permanent substitute for the next two years. But while oh. they were waiting for the permanent sub to come, they got bit all over their face, all over their backs. Um, school system was not a good situation for us. We had issue after issue. There was one time Barrett found a battery, a, a decomposed battery and had it in his mouth. Poison control had to be called. Oh Paper my clips in their teeth. Um, all kinds of things, issues you would, I could write a book on just the issues with the school. But anyway, going back to that, the twins had a lot of services and I would see them just not making a lot of progress. And I kept seeing speech was not coming. Um, they hated their hearing aids. We spent, I feel like we spent a lot of time lost because we spent all of our time not playing but keeping the hearing aids in and mm. it was such a struggle. It was to the point where my older kids were like, mom, we can't do this anymore because when there's two of them and one's running one direction and one's running the other direction um, and they have pica. So they put stuff in their mouth. It was a challenge to keep those in and keep them out of their mouth because once they put them in their mouth, then they would get water in them and then they didn't work. Yeah. So it was such a challenge, but we finally, well, it's one of those, it, it's, it's one of those balances too, of like, this is the equipment or the things that you would use for this diagnosis. But sometimes you just have to say, that's great, but we're just not going to use it. You know, which is what we ended up doing because we felt like they were missing so much valuable school time because they were also trying to keep them in their ears. And finally, I was like, uh, no more. We're not doing this. You know, they're not. We need to focus on some other things. Well, since we weren't seeing progress at school the way we felt like maybe we should is when my husband and I decided, I think we need some more help. So that's when I started, um, well, I first started trying to get them an autism diagnosis. And when I called certain specialists, they said, oh, well, you need to get them in speech. We can't help you. So I said, okay, let me see what I can do in speech. So I got them in speech. And then that's when they came to me and they said, you know, Chris, we think they really need occupational therapy because, and they need, they don't, they can't even play. They had no desire to play. And I think a lot of it was because we had lost so much time trying to keep their hearing aids in. There wasn't playing. We were just mm -hmm. chasing them down all the time, trying to put hearing aids in. And so um, we got them in occupational therapy. And that was when they told me that their hands were not strong enough for sign language at all. And so that's when we moved over to a lamp device and that's how okay, we started and can you explain learning. what that is a lamp device yes so um a lamp device is well tell me so there are electronic devices out there that can help a nonverbal person have communication and talk and the purpose of it is to help create a motor plan in the patient's brain so that they can get what's in their brain hopefully out through their mouth and so it stands for, I wrote it down, it stands for uh, language acquisition motor planning. So uh, when we first started, um, you have icons 
and you keep it very basic. Um, it's considered a one hit. So if let's say they push the word eat, it just says eat. Um, and they can communicate basic needs, you know, that they, they, they want to eat, they want to sleep, they want to go, those kind of things. And as you get a little bit more, um, you know, the icons a little bit better, then you can open it up into what's called a two hit. And so if let's say they push the word eat, they can actually open it up into food groups. So they can go into a food group and tell me they want an apple or they want uh, grapes or oranges. You know, they want donuts, whatever it is they decide that they want. And so it's been about a five-year process to learn this language. It's a language. Uh, we go everywhere. It goes everywhere with us. We go to the park, our device goes. If we go to the grocery store, our device goes. We go on and a they vacation. each have their own device. Is that right? They do. They actually okay. have two. So they each have two, which, uh, so if one goes down, I've got one charging ready for mm -hmm. them to go. Um, and then also too, it allows me, you know, cause when you have a device, you want the child to have ownership of their device. Um, it's theirs. And because that's their words, that's their language. And so by having a, you know, a second one on hand or third one on hand, I can model for them. I can, just, if they're having a struggle or I want to teach them a new word, I can show them, hey, this is how you say this. You go here and then you go here and they can do it on mine or, you know, it's theirs, but I'm borrowing it. Do it on theirs and then they can transfer it on over to the one that's in their hands. Um, it's been the best thing ever. It's so um, amazing just through social media, watching their progression and their progress in it from doing yes. like single like eat and then watching you know they're like oh they just did a whole sentence because it because it'll say like like uh it, it can string words together right and then you hit the play and it'll play the whole sentence yes. that right so whatever words that they type there is a bar at the top and when they press that it will say every single word that they typed out it also has a typewriter on it. So if um, like one of my twins is a really good speller and a good reader. And so he can spell and um, he likes to spell phonetically. So sometimes he'll spell something and I'm like, oh, I know what you're trying to say, but this is how you say it. And then I'm able to model it for him. Um, I absolutely love LAMP. It's the best thing that's ever happened to us. Um, it can be a little intimidating when you first get it because it just looks like a bunch of pictures. But once you familiarize yourself with it and just say, you know what, this is going to help my child. It's so universal. You know, sign language is great. It's wonderful. It's wonderful. But not everybody understands it. And so mm -hmm. by having a LAMP device, pretty much everybody's going to understand the word that's typed or icon that's pressed. Um, and so that kind of opens up a world for them to be able to talk to everyone. To be um, able to communicate. Let, let, let me ask you a question because I struggle with this. I have a kiddo that I see who has a lamp device mm -hmm. and um, she comes home from school. I'm, I'm there. We do therapy right away. Mm -hmm. But she, 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 she pushes eat over and over and over. Mm -hmm. And of course, I want her to eat. And um, family would prefer her weight or they'll give her a little snack. But she also knows if she says eat enough, I'm going to feel bad and be like, okay, well, I don't want you to do therapy because you're hungry. So right. how do you deal with, um, and, and, and we just talk, I talk to her and then she'll talk to me back on her device or she has a couple signs that she does. 
um, and we'll communicate that way. But how do you deal with like, okay, I want to affirm your choices. You're asking for this at this moment. That's not appropriate. How do you deal with that situation going back and forth of like, I want to affirm that you're saying this, but also. Well, that's really, that's really hard because when they say something, you immediately want to give them the feedback, you know, of, um, I heard you. And so in the very, very beginning, we would honor that, you know, if you pushed to eat, I would get you something to eat. Um, now, because we've been doing this for so long, we use a lot of first then language or one and two. So, um, let's say that I'm working with them cause they are homeschooled now. So if I'm working with them and they just want to eat as a delay tactic, sometimes, mm-hmm. um, wanting to eat, um, I will say, yes, you can have a snack. But first, we're going to do a puzzle. Then we're going to have a snack. And I have the snack. And I may even give them one, one or two, like say goldfish. I'll give them one or two goldfish. And I'll say, okay, that's our two goldfish. So first, we're going to do this puzzle or whatever activity it is I'm wanting them to do. Then you can have two more goldfish. And so it's just creating a pattern of, okay, well, yes, I heard you and I have it available for you. But first we have to do this and then we're going to do this. And you just have to keep doing it. So because even after you've given them the snack, then you have to go, okay, first we're going to do the next activity and then you can have more. And there's probably going to be crying, fussing, but they eventually get the understanding that this is how this is how we're going to do this. Mm-hmm. Um, and with your patient that you have, maybe using like a first thin strip would uh, help her maybe have a picture of whatever snack she's wanting or the word eat, um, the icon eat, and then have whatever task you're going to do. And then say, yes, I heard you that you want to eat, but first we're going to do this. And then you can have a little bit of a snack and then we're going to move over to the next activity and then you can have a little snack. And then it's going to get to be like with one of my twins. If he does not have a cup of something to drink, he can't focus on anything because he's like, she won't let me drink. She won't let me drink. But if he knows the cup is present and it's there, then I get better work out of him because he's not thinking the whole time and stressing the whole time. She's not, let me have a drink. Um, and so I can get better work out of him if he at least sees it and it's available to him. All right. Um, that's, that's, you're, you're, you're like a master therapist. You may not have been to therapy school, oh, I but know. I guarantee <laughs> you, you can do therapy probably better than 90% of therapists. You, you're so knowledgeable. That's the thing about medical moms. Like we're experts. We, we may not be doctors, but we pretty much know everything about this one condition <laughs> that you can know. I know. Well, and I helpful. find myself, I find myself, you know, cause I'm on a lot of different uh, forums on Facebook and stuff. And some of the other, somebody the other day was talking about, Oh, I have a toe walker. And so I was like, Oh, you should probably look into therapy for them. They probably have low tone, <laughs> you know, yeah, all, all this stuff. That's like, uh, I'm not getting any benefit from telling you this, but just so you know, you, you could do like a therapist mentorship. I'm like, okay, I'm going to teach you how to actually be a therapist, like what they don't teach you in school. <laughs> that's, that's really good. Yeah. You know, the communication I think is, uh, I'm, I'm seeing it more recently with some of my clients I see right now that they're, these kids are so intelligent and, and they know exactly what they want. And then they have behaviors because they don't have a way to express them. Mm-hmm. And so really pushing like, um, and, and, and a lot of people, their insurances, you know, 
you can't have feeding therapy and speech communication therapy. Like the, the insurance just dictate everything and it's terrible. But so being like, okay, we've been working on feeding for seven years. If we're not hitting that goal, I know that sh- this kiddo could communicate so richly if we right. just like really put all of our eggs in that basket. Um, that's always a delicate balance, especially as a therapist. And, you know, one, I'm a medical mom or, you know, what I was, and then being a therapist over here, kind of balancing that you're the mom, you're in control, but this is what I'm seeing. Right. And that, well, sometimes, yeah, like you said, opening well, up the world. Sometimes you have to, um, and I've experienced this with one of my other children is if you've been doing feeding, cause I've been through feeding therapy. I, my son had an oral motor delay, my other son. Um, we've made lots of progress on that. He no, actually no longer even has that issue. Um, but at the time we had done that for so many years to the point where we had to step back from that and do something else, um, and do a different therapy because at that point he was so frustrated and he was so over it, um, that we weren't, it wasn't worth my time. It wasn't worth his time. It wasn't worth the therapist's time. And so we switched and did something else. Um, another skill that he really needed to do. And then we just revisited it when we were done and he had lost that frustration and he was willing to work a little bit harder. And I think that's the hard part. Sometimes as a mom is, you know, especially a therapy mom, you know, I've been doing therapy with just these two children for, we just celebrated our fifth anniversary at our clinic. To me, I celebrate because we've made, you know, a lot of progress, but that's five years. Five years of driving there, five years of driving back, five years of learning new tasks and 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 demonstrating new things to do. That's a lot, you know, and it's mm-hmm. exhausting. Um, but you know your child needs it. I mean, I would love to be able to say, I'm done. You know, I'm not going there anymore. I, I want my week, I want several days of my week back, you know, because mm-hmm. the time I'm away from my um like my mother in law comes over and helps me with even though I have older children, I still want to have, you know, an adult here while they're doing their school stuff. And so, um, you know, she comes over. So that's her time too, that, you know, is, is being used. Um, yes, you know, getting there and back, you know, it's all time consuming, but at the end of the day, when your child makes their goals and they meet all their goals, it's worth it, you know? Mm-hmm. And, and so, but sometimes we do have to say, okay, is do I need to change? Do I need to change some things up? Because if we can continue to do the same thing, sometimes we just don't grow. Yeah. Um, I remember hitting that crossroad in my son Dominic's life where we were working for a long time on feeding and he just was, I mean, he was born without like a suck swallow reflex. Um, we were trying to feed him with the bottle when he was born. And then the speech therapist came over, but we'd been doing that for like days in the NICU and the speech therapist came over and she was like, stop what are you doing? And she's like, do you like his tongue's not moving? He doesn't have the reflexes. So anyway, I think he was like, I don't know, one and a half, maybe he was even two. And we were still doing feeding therapy. And then I just hit a point where I'm like, why are we doing this? Mm-hmm. Like, and then recently I talked to a mom whose kid has the same diagnosis as him. And she worked longer than I did. And the kid learned to eat. And I'm like, well, maybe I should have kept going. But for him, it didn't seem to be working and it, and it seemed to be, it's just, it's just hard decisions to make, you know, like I know that every kid's different, even if they have the same diagnosis and it's kind of like, well, at least with a feeding tube, I was, I was sure that he could get 
all his nutrition and all that. But just, you know, making that decision of like, you've been doing the same thing for a year and a half. Maybe you should revisit what you're doing um, versus, okay, we're seeing progress. We're going to keep going. We're going to keep going until we see this big plateau. But that's one of the things that I tell all of my kiddos, my, my families is like, I'm a real big believer in therapy breaks. And I think, I think mostly because I was a therapy mom also, I was a therapist, but also all, we were in therapy all the time. And, uh, I don't know, maybe it's my personality, but like I needed breaks. I felt like everyone, I feel like the therapist needed breaks. I feel like they get to a point where it's like, oof, I like, I just got to take a break, but I don't know. It, it, It just depends. It just depends on the kid. And I think if you have, you know, like an outlook that's so positive, it can be different. I think I'm naturally choleric. So and kind of like an introvert, even though right. I'm talking to the world, <laughs> but like in general, like I just have to have time to recharge and stuff. And uh, that probably makes a difference. So just knowing yourself and your kid and where they are. Um, right. Well, and, and I know for myself, you know, I have twins, they're identical, but they're very different. You know, one's left-handed, one's right-handed, one has strengths of the other one's weaknesses and vice versa. And so sometimes, and, and I'm doing therapy for both of them in the same week, you know, plus daily because they're at home. Um, so I have to, what I end up doing a lot of times is whatever I've learned and with one therapist for one child, because they each have their own therapist. So Brennan mm-hmm. has his own speech and OT and Barrett has his own speech and OT. And so I take with what I learned from one and I cross, cross it over to the other one. And then, you know, I'm constantly doing that. And then the other thing is sometimes what's working for one twin, is not going to work for the other one? So it's constantly trying to figure out, okay, is this going to work? Is this not going to work? Is this therapist that I have actually going to be a good fit? Like recently, Mm -hmm. one of our therapists is on maternity leave, super excited for her to have a baby. But something that I don't think a lot of people think about is you know, changing therapists is stressful for the child. It's also just as stressful for the parent because, Mm -hmm. you know, you don't know them. They don't know you. They don't know how you work with your child. Um, They don't know your child. You know, they don't know you. Um, It can almost feel like you're being uh, judged or um, observed on how you handle your child. You know, that can be very nerve wracking. Um, Mm -hmm. They can have opinions on how you handle your kid. Um, And so it's stressful. I'm in this right now. Exactly. Um, Because we have um, a new therapist. But I'm trying to have the mindset that if we don't, if we always have the same teacher, then we don't have an opportunity to grow. Because I'm sure this new therapist is going to teach us something that maybe our other therapist didn't do. But at the same point in time, this new one's a little intense, little intense. And I was a little shocked by it. Um, And I had feelings. I mean, I went out to my car and cried about it the first the first time, Mm -hmm. because um, to be honest with you, there was something that she said to my kid that was a trigger to me, you know. And so I have a lot of experience. I've done this for years, but I'm human Mm -hmm. and there are triggers I have. You know, and so when she did that, I immediately spiraled, you know, in the car. I call my husband and I'm like, this is not going to work out. The next 16 weeks is going to be not good. And I don't know what we're going to do. And this is stressful. And I know Barrett's going to be stressed. And, 
you know, but then I had a few days to collect myself and go, hey, Chris, you know, it's going to be different. It's going to take some time. Um, she's going to have a different way. If you'll be receptive to it, maybe she'll teach you something. Maybe it's something you can teach to your child. Um, and it, again, it just goes back to perspective because, you know, I could have said after that one incident that we had, I could have said, nope, this isn't going to work and I want a new one, you know? And yeah. I think, I think in our moment, especially when we're triggered, it's so easy to be like, okay, no, I don't want to do this, you know? Yeah. But having a few yeah, days, and on the flip side, you know, having somebody you're working with for a while, that's always tell parents that like, this has to be a mutually good fit. And if I don't fit, like, if I don't feel like it's a good fit, or if you don't feel like it's a good fit, then it's not a good fit. And that's okay. And there's nothing wrong with trying to get out of that situation. There, it's a delicate balance right. of, of like, I'm used to the way this person does it. She's been doing it for five years and she's amazing versus, right. and, you know, as a, I mean, I'm totally guilty of this because I, my son had the same PT for his whole life. And when she retired, I tried to go to another PT and it was terrible. <laughs> and I mean, to be fair, my son was like really, really complicated, low tone and high tone and heavy and, you know, all the stuff. And she, she was just new and it wasn't her fault, but I just stopped doing PT altogether because I, I was so attached to this person. And I know that's not healthy, but I was like, I, I, I can't replace that. So we just stopped and we did OT. But then as a therapist too, you know, people are, are often like, you can never leave. You can never leave. And I'm like, well, eventually I'm going to have to leave. You know, I can't be with you forever. So I don't know. It's, it's a hard balance. It's because you're emotionally attached, whether you're the parent or you're the therapist, you get emotionally attached too. And it's just not, it's a messy situation because we're humans. Yes. And, and we've only seen her three times and the, the, this last time was good. I can tell Barrett is testing boundaries with her. You know, he's mm -hmm. trying to see, Hey, what is she gonna, what is she gonna let me get away with? And is my charm going to work? And, um, I think he's going to find out his charm is not going to work <laughs> in this situation. Um, also too, like I have, I've had such a bad experience with the school district. And so she actually has a school district background. And so mm. when I heard that, if I'm honest, when I heard that, that was the worst thing that somebody could have told me because mm -hmm. I have had such a bad experience with the school district. Like I said, I could write a book. I've had to hire attorneys before for the boys to get the things that they needed because um, the situation was so, it was scary and dangerous. And so um, when they said that, I was like, uh-uh, no, 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 no. You know, I, I don't know if I could do this. Um, but I decided, like I said, I, I had my moment, I calmed down, really thought about it, tried to find the bright side. And so far we've had three visits and we're doing better, but it's definitely, it's challenging, it's stressful. Um, mm -hmm. I hope the next 16 weeks goes by really fast. <laughs> <laughs> well, and from the therapist perspective too, I always tell all my families, I'm like, it's going to take, it takes me about two months to really get to know a kid, like right. to know their body and how all their muscles feel and how they can move and how they can't move and how they communicate best. Like you go in for an evaluation, you're supposed to write up this plan and make these goals. And you're like, well, I'm going to do the best, but really, I'm going to really know what this kid needs in about two months. So by the time that comes. You'll only have two more months and then it'll be over. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> yeah, it's it, it, it's a whole thing. 
uh, I always look up to you because you do have such a positive attitude and go into all the therapies and uh, I don't know, all of that. You just, you're made for this. I don't like when people say like, um, you know, oh, God only gives you what you can handle. I'm like, that is not true at all. First of all, I'm like, you, you step up to the plate of what you're given and you have like exceptionally done that. Thank you. I I think for me, you know, when you, when you have a child that you find out has some special needs, your first inclination is go, why me? You know, why, why, uh, I'm not cut out for this. Um, but I think we find that we're a lot stronger than we give ourselves credit for and why not us? I mean, I'm still trying to figure out my purpose, you know, in life. Um, I have a lot of hopes and dreams and wants and stuff, but at the end of the day, I feel like my children are my greatest gift. And if my purpose is to be a special needs mom and also help other people, like that is my heart. My heart is to be an advocate to, to not just for my children, but for other moms. Um, I'm not going to say that I don't get scared or upset or things that are thrown at me, but since I do have a positive attitude and I am able to find some of the bright spots, I feel like I am able to help some other moms be able to, Hey, I understand you have grief. I've been there. I know it's awful. You know, I know you didn't sign up for this. I know this wasn't your dream. Um, you know, from, and I've, I've said this to you a few times, you know, I, when I was in the depth of my grief, having nonverbal autistic twins, I'm sitting in the school psychologist diagnostician's office trying to get a diagnosis for my boys. And I'm sobbing. I am sobbing. And because I'm having to talk about some really hard things, you know, they're asking me all these questions, wanting to know this or that and how severe this. And that was my epiphany moment of where all of a sudden I just saw this garden in my mind. And that's when I realized, you know what? Like my boys, I had this vision for them. They were gonna, you know, be talking and and on target, no delays, you know, all of these things. And that's not what happened. And so this garden that I had envisioned for them had all these beautiful flowers and plants and, I find them over in this other garden that's got a lot of weeds, plants I don't understand, plants I didn't necessarily want. But then as they do therapy and as they learn different things and they meet certain goals, their garden keeps growing and growing and growing. And all of a sudden that garden looks beautiful. It's different, but it's still beautiful. And that's what keeps me going. You know, that's what keeps me doing this and having a positive attitude. Because it's different, not what I want necessarily wanted or thought about, but it's still beautiful. Oh, that's and... such a good analogy. I love that analogy with the garden. I love to garden. I'm not good at it, but I like to like pretend I can garden. Oh, I'm not. I'm not good at it either. I actually do not have a green thumb, but my mother-in-law is a huge gardener, so I just, I just always think about just all the beautiful plants, and mm-hmm. and that's what kind of helps me get through that this, my life does not look like what I thought that it was going to look like. Can you speak a little bit to your relationship with your husband? Because I know there's a lot of stress on families that have kiddos with special needs or who are medically complex, a lot of stress on that relationship. Like I 
took the role of the primary caretaker of our son with special needs. And looking back, I can see not on purpose, but because I was just like, these are the things that have to get done. I was like goal oriented. I left him out of a lot of that and kind of put him in some bad situations whenever I wasn't able to go to appointments or, you know, he was up at the hospital and people were asking him stuff. Um, but we've had to work on our relationship. How, how has that affected you and your husband's? Well, um, so I met my husband when I was 17 years old and I kind of feel like in a lot of ways we've grown, grown up together. Um, and we've faced a lot of, you know, sad situations, you know, we've, um, the estrangement of my parents and fertility failing, um, going through the adoption twice, you know, having a, um, very high risk pregnancy, you know, we've had, you know, we've had a lot of obstacles and a lot of things. Um, I, for us, one of the things that we always say is I choose you every day. You know, it's mm -hmm. easy to, especially in today's world, you know, I'm not happy. I'm not happy. I don't feel happy. You know, to me, love is a choice. You know, we choose to love. And so we actually have a sign over our bed that talks about, you know, I choose you every day. And so I may wake up in the morning and just be mad as heck at him, you know, or he doesn't do a task that I think he should have done, you know, but at the end of the day, he's confident and I'm confident that we just keep choosing each other. The other thing that we do and there, you know, our twins, they're 10, but it's like having toddlers, you know, in, in any situations. And there was a long period of time. They did not sleep at night. And so we lost a lot of sleep. I don't even know how we got through those years, but we lost a lot of sleep and it was easy to be picky with one another. You know, you're not doing this. You're not doing that. But again, at the end of the day, it was, I still choose you. And one of the things that we've tried to do is just be intentional with our relationship. Um, so when you have special needs, sometimes you can't go out on a date. You know, you want to, but that requires finding sitters that can handle your situation and, um, and also feeling comfortable leaving, being able to leave. Well, there's many, I'm, we're just now at a stage where I feel like I can be gone. I can leave. But when I didn't feel that I could leave, we had to get really creative on our dates. And so he, um, and a lot of it was just us talking to ourselves saying, oh, we have a date tonight. Oh, I'm so excited. Are we having Whataburger? Are we having Wingstop? You know, what are we having? And what show are we going to watch? And, and so even though it probably to somebody else didn't sound exciting or fun, we made it feel like it was fun. You know, oh, I can't wait for our date night on Friday. You know, we'd be saying this on Monday, you know, and all it was, was us coming out to his own office, watching a TV show and eating takeout after we put the twins to bed. But that's so important. I just want to let everybody soak that in for a minute, because when we think of date nights, we think of like, we're going to get dressed up and we're going to go out. And, and it's like, it's either that or nothing. Mm -hmm. So like, that's such a attainable thing to do is your date night can just be like every day my husband and I have coffee talk that's that's how we say it <laughs> time for coffee talk and that's our date and it's 15 minutes and we sit and we drink coffee together before dinner but it doesn't have to be a big production every time and I think that's so important especially for like younger couples right who are like you know they feel like are we gonna lose our marriage over this 
to know. Like you don't have, you know, it doesn't have to be a huge thing. Well, you know, Riley and I had seven years of just each other before we adopted the first two children. And so, you know, that was an adjustment because we could just pick up and go and do whatever we wanted. If, if we woke up on a Saturday morning and decided, let's, let's take a trip to Arkansas. You know, we, we did that one time we got up, let's go to Arkansas, packed up a few toiletries and out the door, you know, and, or, Hey, let's go stay at a hotel or let's go to Texas Day to Brazil or whatever, you know? And so then we got the kids. It was like, Whoa, <laughs> you know, especially when you have foster children, you know, you can't leave them with, anybody that's not approved, you can't take them out of the county. Um, oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, there's a there's a lot of stipulations. Um, so if I decided if we decided to take a date night, we had to, if we like, let's say, for instance, we were going to leave them with my in laws, my in laws had to be on an approved list to be able to keep them. Um, if we were going to go visit family who didn't live in Tarrant County, we had to get approval from our caseworker to take them out of the county. So we learned really quickly that, okay, if we're going to have alone time, we're going to have to get, you know, creative. And that kind of helped us later when we had the twins, because, you know, when you first have twins, it's chaotic and, you know, busy and they were so tiny. They were only, um, when I brought them home, they were under five pounds. And so, wow. um, I wasn't going to leave my, you know, NICU twins with anybody. Um, so, you know, we just had to get really creative. And then as they've grown and they've had some disabilities and some special needs, um, you know, I would only leave them with my in-laws. That is it. I wouldn't let anybody else watch them. And now um, I'm still that picky just because whoever is staying with them, I want them to be able to use the communication device to be able to communicate. And I want the twins to feel comfortable with whoever they're talking to. And that is the benefit of now having, you know, an 18 year old and a 20, 21 year old child is that they're able to, they know them so well and they're able to stay with them maybe during the day. If it's a night situation, I have my in-laws come just because while my kids are adults, to me, they're still children. And, you know, I, yeah. that I feel like that's a lot of responsibility. I wouldn't want to, like, if there was a fire or somebody tried to break in, I wouldn't want them trying to figure out how to handle that. And the, and the twins at the same time. Um, but now, uh, so recently, probably in the last year, my husband and I decided that, you know, we do have older kids at the house. And so we put the twins to bed and we go grab a small bite to eat and we go to Winco and that is our weekly date, date night, um, to go get groceries. And to somebody else that might seem like, well, that does not sound fun. Oh, we can make Winco very fun. <laughs> we have the best time and we look forward to it. And and it, it just goes back to when you love your partner and you want to put them first and you want to have a great relationship with them, it does not have to be, we got dressed up and we had a dinner reservation. Yeah. You know, it goes it back to what you said earlier is like, love is a choice. You have to make choices to, to, to love them. If you, um, gosh, I mean the whole pot, this whole podcast has been you giving amazing advice. <laughs> but if you had to give advice to someone who just got a diagnosis, either about their kids or about their marriage or relationships, is there anything that you feel like anytime I meet someone with a new, new diagnosis, this is what I need them to know? That's a hard question. I didn't prepare you for that. Um, 
you know, I think, I think I would probably tell them that for me, and this might not be for everybody, but where's your faith? You know, for me, faith is very important. Um, I have a belief system that um, helps lead my life. And so to me, if you don't have a faith system of some kind, then you don't have that security, I guess, um, that everything's going to be okay. And so for me, my faith lets me know everything's going to be okay. It may not be what I want. It may not go in the direction I want, but at the end of the day, I know I'm loved and, um, that faith lets me keep going, uh, and not let me just lay in the bed and cry my eyes out and, you know, life's over. Um, I would also say, um, if you get a diagnosis or your marriage is failing, find that friend, that one friend that you know that you trust and you feel safe with. Um, I have some women that I used to go to church with. They're much older than me, but I know I see them monthly and I know that if I have a problem or a concern or that I can go to them and I can say, hey, I'm really struggling with this. And they're able to pray with me. They're able to talk me through, hey, well, have you thought about this? Or have you thought about that? Don't suffer in silence. You know, don't don't feel like you're alone. You know, you got to sometimes, sometimes we want people to come to us. And at the end of the day, sometimes we need to go to people. Other people are not mind readers. I tell that to my children all the time. Hey, when you need something, you need to speak up. You know, I'm not a mind reader. I don't know that you're struggling with ABC. You know, and if you would just tell me, then I could help you. I could give you some wisdom or walk you through some steps to feel better. Um, so I would say that um, if you also too, you know, like I said, I meet a lot of medical moms, you know, and I'm not an expert. I'm just your everyday. I have no credentials. You know, I'm just your everyday mom doing the work. That does not work. make you an expert having um, credentials, by the way. <laughs> But go ahead. Sorry. One of, my, uh, one of our one of our therapists that I see, she's like, Chris, when are you going to write that book? And I'm like, when I have time to. and I grow up, <laughs> then I'll write that book. I mean, I've I, I've lived so much life, you know, and there's been there have been moments in my life, and there was a moment I thought I would never be a mom. You know, I I wasn't able to get pregnant. Adoption seemed hard and out of reach. You know, and then all of a sudden I get two kids overnight and then three years later, a full-blooded biological sibling to those two. And I do not take that for granted at all, you know? And so I just try to live my life in a state of gratitude, I guess is the best way to put it. And that would also be my next advice for somebody else is find the gratitudes because when you start really realizing all the things that you're so thankful for in this life, you will have an immense amount of joy. Um, my kids and I did a two year gratitude study where I had them write down just, you know, twice a week, what they were thankful for. And when we first started, it was very materialistic things. But then as the, um, as the study continued, we got real deep because they had, you know, they'd already talked about their electronics and they'd already talked about their 
clothes and their shoes and, you know, all those material things. But then when we got to the nitty gritty and they were talking about, you know, their friendships and their relationships with us and with their grandparents and their animals and things, you know, it got really deep. And now when I, my children, they are able to find the joy. I see them being able to find the joy because they have so many gratitudes and they're so thankful for things. That is, I am going to do that in our family tonight, starting tonight. We are going to start our gratitude journey. That's beautiful. It's yeah, so good. I would honestly tell you that it completely changed our family's life. I mean, we've always had a good, a good family, but what we would do, so we would write those, we would take just a couple days out of the week and we'd write our gratitudes. And then we had one day that we would sit around the table and you didn't have to share everything you wrote, but you would pick your favorites and you would talk about things that you were thankful for that week. And then of course I joined in too. I had my book and I would tell them things I was thankful for. And I can tell you that my kids pivoted into very wise, very empathetic kids right away. Because, and even now, like my son, his favorite motto, and he tells me this nearly daily. He's like, mom, today's a good day to have a good day. And I'm like, it sure is, buddy. It's a good day to have a good day. And that's just how we live, you know? And I feel like we, this world right now is so crazy and there are so many things going on that are negative. And, but if, if we can find that one little thing, you know, in the day that makes it good, it's going to be a good day. And, and I would say, I would encourage other moms to do that too, because it, it really helps me. <laughs> yeah. That's the best advice. Kids. Well, Chris, you're an amazing human being and I'm so grateful I'm going to tell you my gratitude. I'm grateful that I got to meet you all those years ago. And I would have never thought that it would end up being a fellow medical mom and learning so much from you. You just finished our um, identity challenge, right? Yes, I did. And um, it was, I don't know, it's so cool, like seeing it inside of your head and your heart. So you're amazing. Thank you so much for being on. And I want to have you on again because... I just feel like we could just talk forever. You have so much I to would share. Love that. Yeah. I would love All right. That. Thanks thank so you. much. Um, and thank you have for a good this day. opportunity. Oh thank yeah, you. of course. Of course. You're like my hero. So I'm glad you're on. Thanks for coming on. All right. We'll <laughs> talk to you, you later. Have a good one.